In the first century, Roman believers, still keeping the Jewish law, condemned those who didn't, and the liberated disdained the legalists. As we look at Romans 15, verses 8 through 13, with our study leader Dave Wurzen, the Apostle Paul didn't solve the problem of disunity by creating two homogeneous groups. Listen to his challenge to their true unity factor. As I came up to the basketball court, I was at a park with a friend of mine, and uh, we did what I've done a million times. How many of you have ever gone up to a court in a park? You had a basketball with you, and there was a pickup game of basketball going on. Anybody ever done that? A whole lot of you have, okay? Well, I came up, and I had my basketball. I was a little bit impatient. It was about 15 to 12 when I got there. Without a ref, it was rough and tumble. Man, you went up for a jump shot, you got decked. You tried to drive the baseline. Man, somebody would go with a big you-know-what and send you right off the court, sprawling on the ground. It was really tight. They were going to 21, like a lot of pickup games. And, man, they went 21-20. And so they had a win by two. So it went, the team tied it up, 21-21. It went all the way to about 35-33. And what happens after a pickup game is over? You expect they're going to take a few swigs of Gatorade, right? And then they're going to take five minutes to catch their breath, and then we redivide. In other words, the, in order to let some of the guys that have been playing, in order to let them rest, that they let the two guys and two new guys that came while the game was on, they let them in. How many of you have ever, that's the un- written, but it's the law of the Medes and Persians in park basketball. Well, my friend and I just stood there, and we kept driven our basketball. They didn't talk to us during the break. They didn't invite us to play. The same 10 guys went right out on the court again and continued playing, and we were left out. It became very obvious that we were not welcome on the basketball court. They did not want us to be part of their basketball game, and we couldn't break in to that inner circle. How many of you can remember a situation like that? It might have been in a party. One of my friends uh, actually went to a, an animal show over in Fort Worth, and they shared with me earlier this week that they felt it was really hard, that there was a small group of people that had their special animals and they wouldn't connect with somebody from the outside. Remember back in high school when there was one particular group that you wanted to be in? That happens all the time. Whenever you go to a new group, how many of you have ever felt, I don't fit in here? I want all of you to know that whenever you walk into a new group, it's human nature to feel rejected. It's human nature. In fact, one of the extreme examples of that I can illustrate, how many of you have ever been in a foreign country where you didn't understand the language? What do you think the people are talking about when they're talking in a language you don't understand? Do you think that they're mad or glad? You tend to think they're mad. In fact, I remember the first time I went to Israel, I hadn't heard a lot of Hebrew in my ears. I can read, like, biblical Hebrew, but I hadn't heard it in, a, in my ears, and I didn't understand it. So the first time, there would be a bus driver, and there would be the guide. And they would be talking back and forth. And I remember sitting there going, man, they're speaking about how much they hate Americans and how much they don't want us over here. 
You know, I was like the paranoid. You know what I'm talking about? Well, as I went to Israel several other times, I began to pick up on the language quite a bit. And you know what they were really talking about? They were talking about, hey, we need to get from Tel Aviv down to Java, where the Apostle Paul raised organs from the dead, and also where Jonah took off for Tarsus. And we need to stop for lunch for these 50 people on the bus, so we need to call ahead. We want to take really good care of them. In other words, they were trying to make our trip really sharp and really warm and really loving. They weren't angry with me at all. But my human response when I'm foreign is to feel estranged. That's true when you walk into church. It's true when you come into your small groups. Like in the second hour, some of you will be in small Sunday school classes. If somebody new comes into your group, you need to understand that unless they're a real gregarious, really outgoing person, kind of like my Mary, (laughs) Mary's from Nebraska. And Nebraskans as a whole, are not like my Jewish, Italian, New York, Eastern friends. You see, they bust into a party and they blow all of you Texans away. Remember when the New Yorkers first came down here? In fact, it's taken years and years and years for me to calm down and to not be so loud. In fact, Mary's still saying, hey, you're too loud. Because as Texans, you are easy and you go slow. But the nature is when you walk into a new group, you feel estranged because you're a stranger. Anybody tracking with me? Has anybody ever felt that feeling of estrangement? Raise your hand. All of you have. Now, what does a group need to do? What I want you to know is that one of the things that's happening throughout the country is that people don't feel they can get into Jesus. You know what? People across the nation... They really love Jesus, but they don't love the church. Across the nation, all the polls are showing that a lot of people, they'd like to know about Jesus, but they have a lot of animosity towards the church because things have become so polarized. In fact, a lot of our movement has equated the church with politics, and during election year, it fuels up even more. And so there's a whole lot of unbelievers that feel that if I connect with Jesus, it means that I am a right-wing conservative that homeschools my kids, and that's all really great if that's what you are. But I want you to know that that's not what a commitment to Jesus is. Did you hear what I just said? Those are not the same. There will be some Democrats in heaven. And so what I want to talk to you about today is what's your unifying factor? What lets you people into the game? Because, you know, it's one thing if I'm rejected at a park, but what I want you to be really praying about as Midlothian's growing, I want you to pray that a spirit of contagious love will reach out through you. It begins with you. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will create contagious love that it will reach out. So let's say, for example, to use an extreme case, let's suppose a homosexual comes in and they're struggling with that, that rather than being rejected, they'll know, hey, we gossip, we steal, we're prideful. So you're struggling with a sin of homosexuality, we struggle with a sin of pride, and this is the place where we're transformed. Amen? That's very important. So let's suppose a woman's had an abortion. 
We want her to come on Sunday morning. Do we want her to be rejected? The truth of the matter is, some of you in this room, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but some of you have had an abortion in a group this size. What I want you to know is that King David murdered Bathsheba's husband in brutal, agonizing, much worse than maybe a woman that was burdened and didn't know, maybe a single mom didn't know how she's going to cover it. David blatantly chose another, chose another man's wife and then murdered her husband so he could have her. And yet he's in heaven today because the Messiah, David's ultimate son, forgives sinners. And what I'm talking about is what's your basis for letting someone get close to you? Turn to Romans chapter 15 and let's look there. Romans chapter 15 verse 7 is the conclusion of the point that the Apostle Paul has been making about the weak and the strong. And you've gotten the picture by now. You have a picture that there's those believers that think you need to keep all the food laws of the Old Testament. They keep religious holy days. Uh, They eat kosher. And that's one group of believers. They're not all Jewish because some of the Gentile believers feel that's really a good way to do that. It's good to keep all these Old Testament ceremonial laws. Then you learn that there's another group that say, no, Jesus has completed all that. We're resting in Jesus alone. So we don't have to keep all those rules and regulations. And in the Roman church, this is a big divide. So one of the things I want you to think of is what are some of the divides in Midlothian Bible Church? What are some of the things that keep us apart? What are some of the things that we argue about? That's another way to ask that question. The Apostle Paul is saying that rather than having one group, a Jewish group, who has Jewish music, they have kosher food, and they keep all the Jewish holidays, and they have their church. And another side that was the more Gentile church, they don't keep those Jewish laws. They sing Roman folk songs in praise to Jesus, and they don't keep all the holidays. They worship on Friday night, you know, say they worship on Monday night or something like that. You see what I'm saying? What we do in America, and I want you to really be aware of this, we're trying to do something really unique in America. Across the nation evangelical churches have decided when there's conflict, like there is conflict in our church over music, isn't there? How many of you like hymns? You don't need to raise your hands. How many of you like the old traditional hymns? How many of you like contemporary praise? Maybe I should have you raise your hands, okay? So that's a divide. Like when I hear, you know, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, it brings back all my childhood and all tremendous experiences that Jesus has done for me. And that's what a lot of you are experiencing. But when I'm with a group of 20-year-olds, they remember a contemporary praise song that was sung when they received Jesus, and those things are all connected. So your first response to music is emotional, The very first time you hear any melody, any song, you either like it or you don't like it, and that's not spiritual. It's just the way you are. Music is emotional. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I like Bach. Somebody else can say, I don't like Bach. Somebody can say, I like country western, and someone can say, I don't like it. Somebody can say, I love 
Gaither music. Someone else can say, I don't like it. That's all legitimate. That's the Lord made you like that. And he made it all different. But here's what I want you to stop and think about. Should we divide from one another because of that? The way I'm answering that as a pastor based upon Romans 15 is no. You say, why not? Because our basis of unity is not the style of music we like, is it? Why are we united? Why are we sitting together today? Because of Jesus. Because how many of you believe he died on the cross for your sins? How many believe he rose again? How many of you are resting completely that you know that if your last breath was to happen today, you're safe with the Savior? That's why we're here. That's an incredible family. That's the bedrock of our family. And that's what Paul is saying. If you look at chapter 15, verse 7, Paul concludes his argument, and this is what he says. He says, accept one another. And the idea of accept one another, he began chapter 14, verse 1. He says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. He told the strong back in chapter 14, verse 1, don't you reject those that have more scrupulous laws and keep the Jewish law. Instead, you are to receive them. Now he concludes the passage with exactly the same word, only he tells both the strong and the weak who are both intimately related to Jesus, he says, I want you to accept one another. And the word accept doesn't mean, oh, yeah, I'll let you in. It means to accept as a brother and sister. Because of the blood of Jesus, as I come and as I'm with you today, you're not just an acquaintance. You're not just a fellow Texan. You're not just a fellow American. You are my brother and sister in a family that's going to be eternal. We often sing the family of God. It's been like a traditional song for our church family down through the years. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. This is where it comes from. Paul is telling us that the basis of our unity, the unity factor, is our new life we've received in Jesus. And the blood of Jesus, you might say, is, is surging through us. We have been born again spiritually, so we are blood brothers and sisters. And when we get together, whether it's in a small group on a sunny night or it's on meeting in the store at Walmart, whenever we meet a fellow believer, and that goes across churches, wherever you meet someone that's connected with Jesus, it's my brother. It's my sister. That's what Paul means, accept one another. Then you say, well, Dave, some people, you know, I just don't buy that. In other words, I really think that, you know, there's got to be some major distinctions. There's really holy people in Jesus' family, and then there's some people that just really aren't holy. And I don't think I should welcome them. In other words, we start to make judgments about who we're going to let into the family and who we're not. You all make that decision every time the doors are open. Every time the doors are open and it's people come in, you decide who will we let into the family. How many of you have ever said, we don't want them coming? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you have ever said, wow, we really need to have them? How are you making the judgment? I want to ask you a question. How did Jesus accept you into the family of God? How did you get in? If you're in the family of God today, how did you get in? By grace. Romans 1 said that all the pagans are going to hell. 
And all of us that are self-righteous, that all through chapter one, we're saying, get them, get them, get them. They're really bad. Those homosexuals are bad. Those gossipers are bad. Those disobedient to parent are bad. You know, those immoral pagans that are heterosexually immoral, all of them are bad. And then Romans 2, Paul goes, hey, you that have been judging all the way through chapter one, you're guilty. Because you're not consistent with even your own conscience. And you Jews among us aren't keeping the law. And God's name has been mocked among the Gentiles because of there's no heart for God. And then you come to Romans 3.23, which a lot of you learned in Awana. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many of you have come short of the glory of God in your own strength? So we're united we're united this morning that all of us have sinned. How many of you have sinned? Everybody. So we're united. But then it says being justified freely by his grace. How did Jesus accept you? Jesus died for us when we we're his enemies. We're supposed to be the people that go out into the world and we proclaim God's acceptance. We proclaim God's transforming love. We proclaim the power of the cross to forgive us of any sin. That's the greatest good news in all of creation. And that's what Paul is saying. Our unity factor this morning, we are one together today. And we're going to leave this room and we're going to go all over the area helping people to know that just as Christ accepted us, you can be accepted too. And the whole point of it is to praise God. And we're going to be talking more about that. The whole point of our being together this morning is to say thank you to him, to sing Baruch Adonai in Hebrew, blessed be the Lord. We're going to be doing that forever and ever. Now the Apostle Paul starts to deal with the group. That's his unity factor. He develops it further when he says, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews so that on behalf of God's truth, he might confirm the promises to the patriarchs. So that the unity factor is Jesus Now he talks to the weak group first, which is the Jewish group. Now, if you were Jewish in the first century, there was a lot of exclusion. Like when I first came to Texas, you've heard me joke about it, but when I first moved to Midlothian, like I went to New York City every day, and they actually did have bumper stickers. If you love the Big Apple, go home and eat it. And Mary wasn't even a Texan. She was raised in Nebraska. So here we had a Yankee from New York, with a northern, north of the Mason-Dixon line in rural Texas. No longer rural Texas, but back then it was rural. With an oil. <laughs> now, you all accepted us. You see, there was all kinds of reasons why we could be rejected, but we really united. And it just so happened that the Lord chose to make this the place where Mary and I would have the deepest relationships in the body of Christ. And what you did, it was like, like, I want you to understand that for Jews in the first century to accept the Gentile was as hard and probably harder than for a Texan to accept a Yankee or a Northerner. And what I want you to open your heart to, it's going to be really important. Our church is going to die. We're not going to be able to move into the next generation. We're not going to be able to be on the forefront of what God wants us to do if we become non-receptive, we become non-welcoming, we become someone that pushes people away from the family, which is really easy to do when you have a really nice, close family. The tendency is not to let somebody else in. 
for the Jews, it was really a parable thing. We're the circumcised people. We're the people that have God's promises. And what Paul says to them in this verse is that in the Messiah Jesus, the promises to the patriarchs have been fulfilled. And that takes us back to what we learned about the story of the Bible. A lot of you have learned for years, the Abrahamic covenant is found where? In Genesis chapter 12. The walk through the Bible goes like this. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. That's what you learned about the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Then you said, now the real story of the Bible begins with Father Abraham. And we draw the map, and Father Abraham came from Ur the Chaldees, and he came over to the Promised Land. And you were taught that the Abrahamic covenant means God was going to give them a land, which is important. God's going to make them a great nation. Abraham's going to have kids, and he's going to produce the Messiah. And the third thing is, through him, all the nations will be blessed. So God's point in the Abrahamic covenant was the story of how through Abraham all the nation will be blessed. But you know what Jewish people forgot? They forgot that the purpose of the call of Abraham was not just to build the temple in Jerusalem for themselves. It was not just to have their little land of Israel. It was not just to praise Yahweh just with David. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be the place that all the people that wanted to get close to God, I can get with Jewish people. They know the creator. They know the reason and the story for history. But by the first century, the Jewish people were very aloof. Like if you were a Samaritan, you're not part of our group. You're a bad guy. If you're a Gentile, I thank God, the Jewish prayer, one of the Jewish prayers from the first century goes, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. It says, and I also thank God that I'm not a woman. So there's a little chauvinism in that as well. But you see what they're doing? They are separating themselves. And what I want you to see, it says here that our Savior came. Notice what it says, he came to be a servant of the Jews. When Jesus came, he went only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he only ministered a few times. In fact, only one time did he go out of the promised land when he went to Syrophoenicia, which is up in what's now Lebanon. That's the only time he left the promised land. So one of the things I want you to really nail down is when Jesus came the first time, just like it says here in Romans, he came to be a servant to the Jewish people. Now, that's a very powerful phrase. How many of you would like to know the secret of life this morning? Like there's all kinds of people that are going to go to Houston to hear Joel Olstein today because they want to find a fulfilling life. 35, 45,000 people are going to be there. And the basic idea is you smile, and if you're happy and you're positive, and if you speak words of positive thinking, and we somehow relate that kind of to Jesus at the end, that you're going to be happy. And there's a great form. Joel has comforted some of you, but I want you to listen really carefully. Not only Joel, but listen to me. What is he telling you? And what I want you to know is that what I'm going to tell you, if you take a journey deep inside your heart and you get to the real truth about you without Jesus, there's no spark of the divine down there. There's a spark of the devil. 
If you take a journey deep inside your heart and you look for that inner power and you're going to get connected with, the, with this incredible, powerful force that's inside of you and it will unleash you in the sales force. It'll unleash you in your career and you're going to be able to drive, have big cars and big houses and God will prosper us. You'll buy that as American because all I did as a pastor is bless what we worship in our own strength. But it's not true. From the depths of my heart, I don't have the power to bring blessings to the world. Jesus came to his own people as a servant. You know what the secret to life is? That you let Jesus come into your life, and instead of living for what you want to get, instead of living for what you need, instead of having your dreams, you let all those dreams die. And all you want to do is you want to serve your wife. You want to serve your husband. You want to serve your kids. You want to serve your fellow brothers and sisters. You want to serve unbelievers. Whenever you meet an unbeliever, you meet someone that doesn't know Christ. Maybe it's like the construction guy that I worked with, and they're cussing. You're not rejecting them. And, and when they're spitting tobacco juice on you, you're saying, Lord, I want to serve them. I'm going to be the best carpenter's helper there is for the glory of God, so that in a few months, they'll be able to see enough of the incredible servant of Jesus. Jesus, the God that created the universe, became just a humble servant. This is the secret of life. It's living through the power of Jesus to meet the needs of others. And Paul is, tell, and Paul is telling us here that Jesus was a servant for the Jews, and he fulfilled the promise of Abraham. But look at the next part. He came not only as a servant of the Jews, but he also came in, verse, in the next verse, verse 9, so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. The Jews can count on the fact God fulfilled his faithful promises through Jesus. But now the Gentiles who felt that they were estranged from God, now through the power of Jesus serving them, now they experience God's mercy. And the two words go together. God's merciful faithfulness is powerfully expressed through Jesus. And now Paul proves it through the Old Testament. All the Old Testament was given to help you to endure they help you to encourage each other. So let's look and see how the Apostle Paul encourages the believers in Rome. Look at the next verse. It's as it's written in verse 9. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing, and the word there is hymns. The word there means with a stringed instrument that sing. And hymns would be part of it, but all different kinds of music. This is from Psalm chapter 18, verse 49. I want you to listen to this. It's real important. In Psalm 18, David has been attacked by his enemies and people that are against God. And he's fighting these tremendous battles. At the end of the psalm, he talks about how Yahweh met his need and fought at his side. And David, in his earthly life, was able to beat the Philistines. He was able to beat the Ammonites. He was able to beat the enemies that were coming against him. But what Paul does is show that there's a new son of David's going to come. And David, in ten, a thousand years before Christ, stood up among all the unbelieving nations and he praised God. What Paul is saying is that the ultimate son of David faced a much stronger enemy, the enemy of death, the enemy of the curse of sin. The biggest things that we're all dealing with 
the wickedness that's inside of us. And Jesus hung on a cross, and at his weakest point, Jesus conquered the curse of death. They put him in the grave, and then he rose from the dead. And you know what Jesus is doing now? Jesus is the Messiah that praises his Father among all the nations. So some of you say, well, Dave, I'm not into singing. How many of you ever say, like, I'm not into singing? Don't raise your hand. But I want you to listen. How many of you want to be just like Jesus? Some of you, I'm going to talk to the men, because women sing more than men. Men, you need to sing. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the Savior living inside of you sings. And he sings praise. You see, one of the things that should happen in our group is that we're connected with Jesus, and Jesus sings praise to his Father through us. That's what worship is. It's all different kinds of music, but it's not about what I like. It's about the power of Jesus causing me to sing because I'm so in love with Jesus, and he's transforming me. The Messiah in this verse is Jesus, and he's singing among the nations. One of the greatest things you can do And you should do this during the week. You should do it with your family. We should be a singing people, a joyful celebrating people because we've met the Messiah. The next thing I want you to see is he quotes from Deuteronomy. This is from the prayer of Moses, the very conclusion of the prayer of Moses. And he says, I want you to rejoice, O Gentiles, with the people. Moses described in Psalm 32 the whole history of Israel. And Israel turned into idolatry. He describes, long before it happened, that they would worship false gods. He describes how their enemies come and take them into captivity. Read it. It's incredible. Moses actually predicts the history of the Jewish people before it even happened. But it doesn't end. As you move through Deuteronomy 32, Israel's suffering. They're in bondage. But then it says, but God's going to be faithful to his promises. And Moses finishes the last song that he sang. And here's a man, Moses, the great leader of Israel that's singing. And he closes his song by saying, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You know why Gentiles that are to rejoice with his people? Because Yahweh's kept his promises. And the Jewish people are no longer estranged. And that's what we learned about in Romans chapter 11, that even though the majority of Jewish people right now aren't believing in Yeshua, and many of them reject our attempts to witness to them, they even get mad about it. And it's why we need to keep supporting things like Jews for Jesus and Chosen People Ministries and Ariel. And the reason we need to have a tremendous love for the Jewish people is because Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. So don't buy the politically correct idea is Jesus is for Gentiles and Moses is for Jews. It's wrong. It's not ultimate reality. When you die, when a Jewish person dies, when you die, when an Islamic person dies, they don't go before Muhammad and Moses and then all of us Christians go before Jesus. Not what the Bible teaches. That's why I'm so burdened about it. When you die, every person on planet Earth is going to be before Jesus. And I want to be able to look at Jesus in the eye and say, Jesus, you're prince in your hands. That's all I got. Those wounds in your side, that's all I got. And I'm your child because I'm just dependent upon you to bring me safely home. And I want all the world to have that incredible peace and joy. David then says, he quotes from Psalm 117.1, just two verses in that psalm. It says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you people. So you have... 
in, verse, in, the, in the first quote, we have the Messiah singing. In the second verse, we have Gentiles joining with Israel. In the third verse, we have, in Psalm 171, all the peoples of the earth have joined in praise. Why are they praising it? And he quotes from that famous Christmas passage that we'll close with. This is from Isaiah chapter 11. Remember, that's the passage that says, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder. That speaks about when the lion will be able to sleep with a baby and kids will be able to play with cobras. That incredible passage. Well, that passage ends. A sprout will spring forth from the dry root of Jesse, and he will arise to rule over the nations. And the Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, as you rest in his faithfulness, so that you might overflow with the hope of power by the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. Isaiah predicted that the ultimate serpent slayer that's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15 that you've all been studying when we studied about his story, It said there's going to be a time when the line of David is going to almost disappear. And you won't even be able to figure out who a Davidic son is, hardly. It's going to look like a dry root. The ground's going to be parched. The root seems to have died. And suddenly, out of that obscure time, a sprout's going to shine forth. It's going to start to grow. And it's going to blossom. It's going to grow. And Isaiah predicted that's going to be the Messiah that all the nations are going to bow before. Now, this is what praise is. This is the election time. You all need to vote. Be sure to vote this week. Mary and I have already voted. Mary's mom's already voted. We did the early thing. So you all need to go and do it. How many of you saw pictures of Reunion Arena when Obama came the other day? Why was the crowd gathered? Because they're excited. How many of you noticed that? A lot of them were really excited. Why are they excited? Because Obama, whatever you believe about him politically, about his positions, how many of you would say he's got charisma? He can speak. When he smiles, it lights up the room. Now, you need to be careful, you know, that you evaluate during the election season. You don't want to just let form. But I want you to stop and think. As I watch that crowd, some of you are wrestling. What in the world is praise? Some of you guys just sit there like this. If you watch what the crowd did, they waited outside. Some of them came hours before. You know why? Because they're in love with Obama. They're enthralled with his charisma. That's what praise is. But you know what I want to tell you? Whatever your political persuasion is, one of the things you're a pastor teacher, I want to tell you, we are not electing the Messiah. I want to say that again. Now listen to me. We are not electing the Messiah. So for the next several months, I'm going to keep teaching you about Jesus. You're a citizen of heaven, but you're to be a good citizen of earth. So I expect you to vote I expect you to not just look at outward forms, but to look at real issues, and they're very complex in the political arena. But this is what I want to tell you. Don't put your hope in McCain. Don't put your hope in Huckabee. Don't put your hope in Obama. And don't put your hope in Hillary. You know why? Because they can't deliver you from your biggest threat of all. And they're not going to sustain you and your family. They're not going to forgive your sins. 
I want you to have your hope in the promised Savior to the Jews and the promised Savior to the Gentiles. And I want there to come a day in the United States of America that when I say to one of my Democratic New York friends, I'm a born-again believer, the first thought to their mind is not bigoted, angry, hates homosexuals, hates those that have had abortions, doesn't really care for the poor, which is the way my friends back east hear us. What I want my unbelieving friends, I want there to come a day when I mention I'm a father of Jesus. I want them to think, glorious forgiveness, the hope of the ages, the only Savior that's ever come to planet Earth that can give us joy and peace that will last forever and ever. Young people by the thousand are saying, it's a new day with Obama. No, it isn't. I was a John F. Kennedy kid. I remember when it was going to be Camelot. He could speak every bit as good as Obama. And JFK didn't bring utopia. The violence of this world, the horrible violence of the 60s exploded. And darkness and immorality and, and all kinds of sin began to have great freedom. And tons of young people got involved in drugs, and tons of young people thought that maybe drugs will be the answer. And then their buddies began to die because all these aspirations started to fall. And all these people that felt, there's going to be a new day, and, and JFK is going to be the answer. It can be the age of Aquarius, and we can do it. And suddenly all that died with Bobby Kennedy being killed and Martin Luther King being killed and JFK being killed. But out of that hopelessness, out in California, thousands of thousands of young people began to come to Jesus. And there was a powerful movement of God's Spirit that we're still experiencing today because they realized it's not going to be in a human political leader. It's going to be in God's gift the God-man. The Spirit of God wants to move in my heart and in your heart this morning to help us to be filled with joy, to be filled with peace. If you're a business person that's been looking at the Wall Street Journal and you're so scared about the future, I don't want you to have a heart attack because you're stressed. I want you to be resting in the faithfulness of Jesus. Some of you are facing illness. Let God's Spirit produce joy and peace. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we live in a country where our politicians have to go out among crowds. We praise you for that. We thank you for the fun and for the, the celebratory spirit that there is in a political campaign. I'd ask you, Lord, that we would, as believers, learn to not slander or not to be deceptive. I pray that we would not be cynical. Some of our own members that are involved in the political arena, I pray that we'll pray for them. I pray that you would protect them. But I also pray that we'll realize that what we've talked about this morning is a lot deeper. It's a lot heavier commitment. And I'd ask you that the Spirit of the living God, your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, would fall fresh on us, would control us. I'd ask you, Lord, that some of us that haven't felt loved, I pray that you would open our hearts 
even this morning because of Romans 15, to the unifying love that Jesus can give. Some of us that aren't experiencing joy, help us to realize that we don't have to conjure it up in our own strength, but we can have the dear Lord Jesus produce a joy and a peace that will last forever and ever.